The Other Side of Midnight presents... What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast. Perhaps you can help solve the mystery. This is the Murano Mystery. In our continuing effort to bring a little insight into questions that people have pondered for years... Today, we are going to take a look at the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. And I can't think of a better person to be our Sherpa as we explore the life and death of Michael uh, Michael Rockefeller. We are joined by Carl Hoffman, a former contributing editor of Wired and National Geographic Traveler, and the best-selling author of five books, including Savage Harvest, A Tale of Cannibals, Colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's Tragic Quest for Primitive Art. Carl, thanks so much for joining me at what I know is an inopportune time. (laughs) It's fine. Good morning. Good morning. Now, um, refresh our recollection. There might be some folks listening that can't exactly pinpoint which Rockefeller Michael was. Give us the Reader's Digest version of who Michael Rockefeller was. Michael Rockefeller was the 23-year-old son of Nelson Rockefeller, who at the time that our story takes place in 1961, Nelson was the governor of New York. So uh, big, big person. And Michael had just graduated from Harvard uh, that spring and uh, went off to New Guinea uh, working on a film project, and he vanished. Now, um, he went to New Guinea the first time as part of a documentary project? That's correct. He went uh, – there was a man at Harvard named Robert Gardner who was doing these kind of groundbreaking ethnographic films, and he went with Gardner as Gardner's sound man uh, into a place called uh, the Balin Valley in the highlands of uh, what was then Dutch New Guinea. It was the Netherlands' last colony in the east, and he – uh, uh, his father, Nelson, had, you know, of course, the Rockefellers were important uh, art collectors. And in uh, the 1950s, Nelson had opened the, what was then called the Museum of Primitive Art in New York. And it was the first museum in America that dedicated to the art of indigenous people. And Michael, at the age of 19, had been put on the board. And so off Michael, he graduates college, and off he went to uh, the wilds of uh, of uh, Netherlands, New Guinea, into the highlands. And he heard about a group of people on the coast uh, called the Azmat, who were uh, incredible artists and woodcarvers primarily. And he took a little uh, break from the filming and went and uh, did a little reconnaissance and uh, was amazed at what he saw. And when filming was over, he went for a longer journey uh, and was traveling on a boat, uh, uh, kind of two handcrafted uh, vessel, two dugout canoes with a kind of Tom Sawyer-ish uh, thatch hut on on top of them, and they were crossing the mouth of a river with extraordinary uh, tidal out, both tides coming in and the powerful river going out, and got into some rough water and overturned, and uh, that's the beginning of the tale. So, um, what do we know about what Michael said 
about why he was so motivated to spend time in uh, Dutch New Guinea with uh, with the the Azmats. What did he say about after that? After that first trip was completed and the documentary was completed, what did he say about why he wanted to go back, if anything? Well, I think he was – we don't have uh, enormous – you know, the Rockefellers didn't give me permission to uh, go into his private uh, uh, letters, unfortunately, but there are a lot of – there's a lot of material, including some journals at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the archives. And, uh, you know, Michael was trying to, I think Michael was trying to emulate his father and trying to, you know, he was brought up in a world of art. The family had created the Museum of Modern Art. Sorry about that. We had a, a technical problem there. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, but you're... No worries. The, the family were huge art collectors. That's the world in which Michael had been raised. His father, in, you know, his father's special thing was uh, was so-called was tri- indigenous tribal art. So Michael, I think, you know, he, he was resisting going into the family business. I mean, I think there was pressure on him to, you know, make something of himself and go, you know, make lots of money like a uh, good Rockefeller should. And he was restless and he wanted to be, uh, you know, Indiana Jones. And I think, you know, every boy wants to impress his father. Sure. And so he was an adventurer. He had an adventurous spirit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And a love of art. I mean, you know, there's no uh, uh, there was no pretense there. So what do we know about at the time in 1961 when he first disappeared? What did authorities know? What was reported publicly at the time? Well, um he was on this boat and it overturned and they drifted for two and they had there were four of them, two local uh, health assistants, young teenagers uh, and a Michael and a 34 year old Dutch man named Rene Wassing, who was an anthropologist who had been kind of given to Michael as a minder by the Dutch government. And uh, the, right immediately, the two boys swam away from the boat to shore and uh but they vanished from the perspective of Michael and Renee they had no idea if they'd reached land or not and they and no help came they drifted and after 24 hours Michael uh, did the the thing you're never supposed to do when you're in a boating accident you know you're always supposed to stay with the boat he strapped a couple of empty gasoline tanks to his uh by rope to his waist and got in the very warm water and looked at Renee and said, I think I could make it and swim away. And he was never seen again. Mm. But as it turned out, those two boys did in fact uh, make it to land. They just had a long journey to get to Agats, which was the administrative center where they raised, which they finally did raise the alarm. The Dutch sent out all these patrol planes and uh, they found within 12 hours, they found Renee Wassing and then another a few hours later, they rescued him. But Michael was never seen again. And the huge, you know, Mike um, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor, and Michael's twin sister, Mary, flew to New Guinea uh, immediately and oversaw this massive rest search and rescue effort. Dutch planes, helicopters from Australia, 
Um, you know, there were people on the ground, missionaries who were looking for them, and uh, no trace of him was ever found. And the presumption was that he had just drowned at sea. Um, but of course, that turned out to be because there was no trace of him. But it, but that turned out not to be the case. Well, um, when did your interest in this case start? Well, I went to. Uh, I guess I started traveling shortly, you know, 30 years ago, right out of college and had a wanderlust, you know, a a, a big piece of wanderlust striking me. And uh, in the late 80s, my father had a job for a few years in Indonesia and Jakarta, and he traveled around and I went to visit him, visit him. And during that, right around that time, I, I don't even know how I found out about it, but I watched the movie that Michael had worked on, uh, which is called Dead Birds, and which was this groundbreaking ethnographic film. And, uh, uh, you know, that, that it has been super striking to me. And I wanted to go to the place where that movie had taken and happened but of course it was just too far too crazy to get to in my limited time and budget but that made me aware of Michael and you know years passed and I kept thinking that there was more to the story mm. and and you know in in the early in the early 2010s I started looking into it and realized that you know if you google Michael Rockefeller there's you know a billion literally hits that come up but they were all based on the same few uh, uh, stray pieces of conjecture and evidence and thought that as a, a, a journalist that some that it was time for somebody to do a sub, substantive, mm. uh, careful uh, look into it. You know, I knew I could go into archives and I knew that I could go into ASMAT itself and go in in a way that nobody else had had done before. And so that's what I started doing. And, uh, you know, what was amazing, like you can't make, you know, this is a story that you can't make up, you know, that the most creative guy in Hollywood couldn't think up. And it, you know, immediately I hired a young researcher in the Netherlands who started going into the Dutch archives and immediately he started finding this, you know, this stuff. And what, you know, we're talking real documents, you know, documents from the Catholic Church that said, you know, this is a cabinet of glass. Do not touch it. You know, all of the records of, mm. the, of the Dutch uh, 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 Navy looking for him, you know, all the cables from the Dutch government. And, and most importantly, we found these reports from two priests in particular, Dutch priests who missionaries who had been one, a father Van Kessel and the other father Van Pye. And they had both been in Asmat for a couple of years and spoke local languages and were comfortable in the terrain. And uh, after just two weeks after Michael's disappearance, when all the search and rescue equipment and people went home, they began going out into their uh, parishes, into the villages, and immediately they started hearing these rumors that Michael had had, had not drowned or been eaten by crocodiles, but had made it to shore and where he encountered men from one particular village, the village of Ochenep. And he had encountered those men and he had been killed by them. Wow. And 
Go ahead. No, no. Uh, so I just want to remind folks, we're talking with Carl Hoffman. He's written a book all about this. If you're interested in learning more, it's sort of the definitive research into what happened to Michael Rockefeller. It's called Savage Harvest, a tale of cannibals, colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's tragic quest for primitive art. So your conclusion, Carl, uh, based on examining all this evidence was he didn't drown. He didn't get eaten by crocodiles or sharks. He made it to shore and encountered these uh, Hostile asthmats. Yes, and it's even more sort of incredible and complex than that. He, you know, he 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 encountered these men from one particular village, the village from Ochnep, and that village had been in a war. It was, it was a big. It was kind of like New York City village. It was a big, powerful village that was slow to change uh, under the pressure the pacification programs of the Dutch at the time. And in 1957, you know, just a few years prior, there had been this sort of last great battle between villages of Ochnep and Omadisep, uh, two near villages close to each other that had been fighting each other for years. And a Dutch colonial patrol officer named Max Lepre had gone to that village. And I have the documents that, and he he wrote to show them the power, to teach them the power of the Dutch government. And that power meant burning uh, ceremonial longhouses in Omadisep. And when he arrived to Ochnep, he was, it was raining and he was afraid and the skies were pressing in and uh, he had all these armed guys with him and, you know, all hell broke loose and he ended up killing five people. And that set everything up for, for what happened to Michael. But I had all these documents. But, you know, the thing that I really, you know, you don't know, are these things true? Do they reflect the, the reality on the ground? And what I had to do was go there myself. Wow. Now, nobody uh, was ever was never was ever found, I guess, because he was eaten. He was. He was. uh, You know, I mean, it's hard to talk about this without explaining. And and it's too long for for this conversation. But asthmat culture was really complex and complicated. And when we're talking about cannibalism, you know, we're not talking about hunger or going to McDonald's to get a burger. We're talking about. A, 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 a complex sacred ritual uh, that was really about getting the heads. The heads in Asmat culture were important. You know, men were were trees, and trees were men, and the seeds of trees made new trees, and the seeds of men were their heads made new men. And in these initiation rituals for young, uh, for adolescent boys, you know, the head of a of a of an enemy was placed between their legs to, to, to fertilize the young man. So there were all these things going on and I had to go and, and try to untangle that. And I went to the village of, uh, Ochnep and I spent two months and I, and I, well, I went to asthma and I spent two months going through asthma and it was extremely difficult, a difficult place to be. And I didn't speak the language and, you know, I had to have an interpreter and the interpreter had an assistant and we had to go by boat or no roads. It's a 10,000 square mile swamp with no roads at all. And, and, uh, you know, I had this big retinue and, and I got, information slowly but surely. I mean, one day I was sitting in this village 
And uh, my interpreter got all excited. He, he introduced me to a man, and he said, "This is Kokai, and Kokai, you know, is a is the 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 head man in in effect of the village of Ochinap. And you know, he's an older man. And I said, "Oh well, it's because I hadn't told my guides and my interpreters that I was looking for Michael Rockefeller. I didn't say anything about that. I just said I wanted to." Uh, understand asthmat history sure. and culture because I didn't want them to take me on some false trail. Right. So I said, does he remember a uh, a battle uh, uh, between these two villages? And does he remember this Dutch guy coming in 1957? And he, you know, they start talking and suddenly Kokai starts telling the story and he's getting all, uh, uh, you know, using his hands and I, and he, and he, in, you know, pantomiming air, shooting of arrows and driving of spears. And I hear these uh, names or these words. I don't speak the language, but I, I understood these names and they were the same names as the ones in the, re, in the official reports. And that made my hair stand up. I knew that these events, the events that were in the archives, 50 years old and that the events and the memories of the, of the local people were starting to, were the same and were coinciding. And it's a long tale, but in the end I had to, I made three trips to this village and I ended up living in the village, learning to speak Bahasa Indonesia, the Indonesian language and going alone without all these people uh, and living in the village and living with Kokai and, uh, uh, you know, spending weeks not even asking questions, just just learning to for them to kind of accept me and get used to me. And then finally, I started asking questions and and, you know, the answers that they gave me all were very clear and that Michael, it turned out, had been killed. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And and he had been in, in asthmat culture, reciprocation, what we would call revenge was all important. And these five people who had been killed were uh, the most important people in the village, the leaders of the men's houses. And their bodies could not, their souls could not move on to the land beyond the sea until their deaths had been reciprocated. And uh, Michael was a step in that direction. So, but why did they pick Michael to reciprocate uh, the these deaths? Why was it Michael that was on the receiving end of this sort of re- revenge killing? Because he was, in their eyes, he was a Westerner. He was, yeah. in their eyes, a member of the same tribe, you might say, as uh, the as uh, Max LePray, who had gone and assassinated their own people and leaders. And Michael had just been, you know, there's a lot we're not being able to say here right now. But Michael, but, you know, all of these guys, the Dutch at this time were supremely powerful. They had shipped and guns and airplanes and the azmat had nothing and so when michael's you know earlier forays into the village you know, he was always with a group of people other dutch people and anthropologists and guides and you know he was never alone and it the moment he swam up 
to the men from Ochinep, he was, it was a unique, incredible, you know, rare moment. I mean, Michael was exhausted from swimming some 20 hours. He was alone. He was vulnerable in a way that no Westerner had ever been. And at that moment, these mm-hmm. men from the different men's houses of uh, Ochinep were, 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 were in their canoes on the shore, uh, smoking, taking a break, and an argument actually ensued. And uh, but there were some, a man named uh, Ajam and Finn and Pep, and they wanted, they saw an opportunity in Michael to, in effect, take their take, take their, their power revenge. back, pa- yeah. take their well, their revenge and power. I mean, their power was being was being taken from them by the Dutch and their religion and their way of life. And in this moment, they drove the spear into Michael and took him away and chopped him up and, and ate him and took his power. And Carl, attempted to- uh, uh, let, we're just about out of time, but let me just ask this question, because I know there have been a number of theories over the years that either he was held captive by the natives for a time or that he even lived among the population for decades after and became an old man in uh, this part of New (laughs) Guinea. Any truth to either of those based on your research? None at all. There's no, uh, you know, it's not that big a region. There were missionaries and Dutch and Dutch and then Indonesian uh, officials in the area for for, for in every town and village uh, and any kind of, uh, you know, Western guy living there would have been known. And, and, and there's no reason. Why would Michael, you know, one of the, the, the heir to one of the greatest fortunes mm. in American history, uh, loved by his family, uh, sure. a guy who loved his family, you know, why would he just give that all up yeah. and live in some, you know, muddy village for the rest of his yeah. life nope. and never go home? It doesn't that, make sense. That's true. Uh, Carl Hoffman, you've written a number of other interesting books. I hope you can come back in the future and we can chat about some of them. Meantime, if people are interested in hearing more about this, they should check out Savage Harvest, A Tale of Cannibals, Colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's Tragic Quest for Primitive Art. Thanks so much, Carl. You're welcome. Take care.